Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome back to 1 Corinthians. If you cast your mind back, I I know it seems like eons, but back just to last February, in January, the first half of February, we did the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. Then we went into our Lenten series, we've gone into Easter, we've done a little mini-series after that. Now, here we're we're getting back in, and we won't do the whole rest of the book now, because it's quite long, it's 16 chapters in total, but we're going to do another chunk of it here as we go on in the spring and on into the summer. So, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are just going to pick right back up where we were before. And if you remember, or if you were paying attention when you saw the little image there before the sermon started, we've humorously entitled this Church at Its Worst. And boy, starting now in chapter five, we're really gonna get into that. If you remember, or if you can think back, and if not, that's fine, I'm about to tell you. But in the first four chapters, Paul was really dealing with the issue of unity in the church. He was talking about divisions, issues that came up from the divisions. He was speaking a lot about the importance of unity. And then he goes off on this little rabbit trail, if you remember, about the Holy Spirit and some other things. And then he comes back. But if you have chapter five open, just look back a couple verses to where Paul starts speaking at the end of chapter four. This is what he says. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? You can hear the the tone from the appeals to unity has sort of shifted, and Paul has become more serious. And now, in the next couple chapters, we're going to deal with some very, very serious issues going on in this church. So again, public service announcements. You've heard it before. I just want to say it one last time. Parents, if you're watching with this, this with your kids, you need to have previewed it, because the issues that are dealt with in chapter five are adult issues, and we'll talk about them because they're in there. We, we won't be gratuitous at all, but they are there. So make sure that this is okay for your kids to watch. So assuming you've done that, read along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or swindler, a drunkard or a slanderer. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So there is a ton going on in this passage. We could easily spend several weeks on it, but, but I want to look at one specific aspect of it because this is a seminal chapter in scripture for how we deal with sin. And it cleans up a huge misunderstanding that these folks had in you know, 50, 60 AD and that we still have today. I want you to imagine that you asked a bunch of people who are not Christians and they, they haven't grown up in church or anything like that, ask them for some sayings that they know come from Jesus. And I bet you'd get folks who would tell you, you know, the golden rule. You'd get folks who would tell you, oh, love your enemies. Don't pay back evil for evil. But I bet you also would get some people who would quote to you from Matthew chapter seven, verse one. It's the very end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus says these words. He says, do not judge or you will be judged. The measure you use to judge others, that's the measure that will be used to judge you. Now, in the language of the Bible, the New Testament specifically, the word judge is this really broad term, just like it is for us in English. You know, judge in English can be this really weak word that simply means, you know, I, I made a decision on something. Like I could say, oh, you know, I judged that mountain to be at least 3,000 feet, but it turns out it's only 2,000, right? I, I, I was wrong about some decision. I, I made, I had some idea and I was or I wasn't correct. Judge can be all the way over on that end and it can be all the way on the other end of this really stern word, like a judgment. It, it's a, a legal term. It speaks of condemnation. It speaks of action being taken against you to be judged. When you read the word judged in the Bible, it almost always is way over on this side. The idea of condemning, the, the idea of, of punishing, of taking action. Because think about it. If Jesus says to us, do not judge, or you will be judged. Can he possibly mean never say anything is right or wrong? I mean, if that's what he means, then imagine a situation where you and I are sitting together and you look over and you see someone do something, right? They run a red light or whatever. And you judge in this sense. You say, oh, I can't believe he did that. that that's so dangerous. You know, that, that, that's just wrong. He shouldn't do that. Okay. So you've looked at what someone has done and you've made a, a judgment in this sense of the word. You've said whether something was right or wrong. You've had an opinion on it. Now I turn to you and I say, hey, don't judge. Now what have I done? I've looked at you, what you did, and I've made an opinion on whether what you did was right and wrong. I've done to you exactly what you did to someone else you told someone else what they did was wrong. I mean, they weren't there. You just said it. And I turn to you and say to you, oh, no, it's wrong for you to tell someone that what they're doing is wrong. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It can't possibly mean that. And is Jesus a guy who walks around this planet not saying anything about right and wrong? No, 
obviously, Jesus always tells people about things that are right and things that are wrong. When scripture speaks about judging, it's, it's the idea of condemnation. It's the idea of taking action. It's like a, a judge pronouncing sentence or a, a judgment made against you. And that's what Paul is speaking of when he talks about judging. But we often do what it seems like they were doing is we think it's like, oh, I can't say anything bad about that. And so Paul tells them these really interesting words. He says, hey, don't judge, don't condemn, don't don't specify actions that need to be taken for those outside the church. He says, that's not our business. That's God's business. God will deal with those outside the church. Now think about this for a minute. I just want you to imagine for yourself, we ask 100 people who aren't Christians to give us some adjectives. What comes into their mind when they hear evangelical Christian? When they hear conservative, Bible-believing Christian, what adjectives come to their mind? I think I can probably guarantee you that the word condemning will show up. Because brothers and sisters, we are very good at doing exactly what scripture tells us not to do, condemning the world. Now again, I'm not saying we're not allowed to say things are right and wrong. We absolutely are allowed to say things are right and wrong. That's a different use of the word judging, but we're not allowed to condemn. We can't be the judge. We're not the judge. God is the judge. God decides on punishment. God decides on outcomes. God renders judgments against people. We don't get to do any of that. We can say, yeah, according to the scriptures, this is right and this is wrong. But we never get to be the judge. We never get to condemn those outside the church. And yet the reality is, so often we do. And in fact, I'd say we're probably pretty well known in the world for being those sorts of people, for being people who are against the things that are outside the church, for being condemning. Paul tells us, no, absolutely not. That's not our business. I mean, he says that flat out right. What business is it of mine to judge, to condemn those outside the church? God will judge those outside. God will condemn them. God will take care of that. Outside the church, that's his business. But Paul says, and here again is where it is often so different than how we actually live it out. Paul says, it is absolutely our job to judge, to condemn inside the church. He says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? We are not to condemn the people outside the church. God, that's God's business. But we are absolutely to condemn sin inside the church. And that is so offensive to our modern individualistic, you can't tell me what to do. I'm my own agent and I decide everything for my life. Paul says here, we as the church, we are to judge these things. We talked last week about King Saul and King David and we talked about sin on a personal level, how Saul responds personally to sin, how David responds personally to sin. This week in this chapter, we're dealing with sin corporately. 
Not how do we respond just personally? How do I, Jeff, respond? How do we as a church, how do we as Dunwoody Community Church deal with sin in our midst, in our church? And Paul has strong, as you read and you heard, Paul has strong, strong words about how to do that. And lest you think this is Paul being Paul, right? Paul, Paul can be intense. Paul has kind of a reputation, right? He's not making this up. Flip back in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Flip back to chapter 18 of Matthew. I'm gonna start reading from verse 15. So Matthew 18, verse 15, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take two, take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, end quote. He's quoting the Old Testament there. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. See, Paul isn't the first one to say that sin is to be dealt with in the church. You know, this is one of the only times, and I mean literally the only times, that Jesus ever speaks about the church because the church doesn't exist when he speaks. The church won't exist until 50 days after he dies and rises again. There's no church when he says this, but it's important. And we need to know it for when there is a church. How do we deal with sin? And notice there's this long progression. It starts individually. I think you're doing something wrong. I come to you personally, because of course I could be wrong. I may not have all the facts. I may not understand it, but nope. I still think what you're doing is wrong. I gotta go get a couple people to come with me, Jesus says. Because again, I could be wrong. I need to get a couple others to agree with me and we all come to you. That works its way up until you have to get the whole church. But when the whole church agrees that this is wrong, then Jesus says, you treat them like a pagan. Don't treat them like a Christian anymore. They're not. Paul says a similar thing in other language. He says, put them out of your fellowship. Don't associate with them. We don't treat them like a Christians. Why? Why is it so important that the only thing Jesus will say about the church, because again, it doesn't exist when he's speaking. The only thing he thinks is so important that he's going to talk about the future when there is a church. This case where Paul is going to bring this up, and these are not the only places. Paul will talk about this again to Timothy in his personal letter to Timothy with how to be a pastor. He will talk about this same thing, putting people out of fellowship, what to do about people who are sinning. Why is this so important? Paul gives us two reasons. The first reason he says it's so important is for the sake of the person who is sinning. This guy, you know, we're never given a name and there's no, we don't know anything else about it. There's no other writings from the time that tell us about this situation. Um, but this guy is committing incest. He is sleeping with the wife of his father. Now, those words are significant. It's not he's sleeping with his mother. He's not sleeping with his stepmother. Presumably his, his dad has died or they're divorced or, or something. Um, but this is a close family member that he is having sex with. And when we translate verse one, the translators have to do some gymnastics to turn it into an actual English sentence. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. That's a good sentence. Literally, what Paul says isn't grammatically correct. 
Because remember, Paul is speaking this. He has someone writing it down. What is actually written down literally is, seriously? Sexual sin is reported among you. A kind, not even the pagans. A guy is sleeping with his father's wife. Like there aren't enough verbs in the sentence. It's like he's apoplectic because this is wrong. I mean, this isn't a case of like, you know, I don't think you've done something right and I'm, I'm coming to you personally. Everyone knows this is wrong. It's wrong in the Old Testament Jewish law. It's wrong in Roman law. The Greco-Roman people, they know this is terrible. Like, you can't get married to someone who was once married and sleeping with your father. It's illegal. If they catch you, the penalty under Roman law is exile to an island to live out the rest of your days alone because what you've done is so heinous. This guy is committing incest. And so Paul says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, we don't actually know exactly what that means. Again, we don't have other writings in other places that explain what this means. So there's sort of two camps on what it could mean. One camp takes it more metaphorically, that it's figurative language. It's the idea that, you know, as a Christian, you're under God, you're in his kingdom. And so what we're supposed to do is effectively treat you like you're in Satan's kingdom, kind of like what Jesus says, treat them like a pagan. They're not in the church anymore. One side takes this metaphorically or figuratively. And so the destruction of his flesh then, the flesh is a, a metaphor for his sinful nature. And that's often the case. Paul often uses the word flesh or body to mean kind of like that, that old you, that the you you were, the stuff you used to do before you were a Christian. Maybe it's figurative language for treating this person like they're not a Christian. Like, what he'll say later? Don't associate with them. Don't even eat with them. Other commentators take it much more seriously. They think it is much more literal, that it's some sort of removal of God's protection on someone. That, you know, you're, the, 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 the demons are only allowed to mess with people as much as God says so. You know, when in the book of Job, when Satan wants to do harm to Job, he needs God's permission. Maybe there's something actually going on in spiritual realms that Satan and his followers are allowed access to this guy more than, much more than they could have when he was in the church. I don't know. I confess I'm, I'm not sure which of those it is, but what's important is why Paul says you do it. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This is in verse five. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The reason you do this is not punishment. You're not doing it to get back at someone. You're not doing it to harm someone because they've done harm to you. You're doing it so they'll be saved. Because I think if you ever get in this position, if you ever get in a case where you are doing something that everyone knows is wrong, it's not only wrong, it's illegal, it's shameful, it's disgusting and, and horrible in this culture. The Jews know it and the Romans know it. I mean, there's not a ton that the Jews and the Romans agree on, but this is one of them. This is so wrong. When you get to that point, there is serious, serious questions about whether you are a Christian. 
Like if you are able to stare at sin like this and say, I'm not doing anything wrong, that's fine. I don't see what a problem is. When everyone around you, like Jesus says, right? Bring the whole church to this person if you need to, to convince them. When everyone knows this is wrong and you're like, nope, nope, I'm doing everything right. There's serious, serious questions as to whether you do in fact know Jesus. Because the essence of our faith is we ask for forgiveness, We know we're sinners. We need Jesus to save us. We don't do what's right. We know we can't do what's right. That's why Jesus needs to save us. But this guy doesn't sound like he thinks he needs saving from this, even though everyone in his world would know it's wrong. Paul says, you do this because you want to see him saved. This is drastic, extreme measures to see someone in heaven, in God's kingdom, who has just gone completely off the rails and there's a good chance they're not a Christian. So Paul says, we hand them over to Satan. And folks, I don't know exactly what this means, but I have done it. We have done it in this church. We have run through the whole gamut with someone that Jesus talks about, going to them alone, going to them in groups, talking to them. Talk. I mean, it takes months. In one case, it took over a year. But eventually, we get to the point where, where we pray this. Lord, I don't know exactly what this means, but I hand this person over to Satan. Will you in the spiritual realms do whatever is necessary to save their soul on the last day. We have done this because it's in scripture. Because Jesus tells us to do it, because Paul tells the Corinthians to do it. Paul talks to Timothy about it. It is a reality. We do not condemn those outside the church. Oh, but we absolutely condemn sin inside the church. The first reason is for the person themselves. If they have gotten themselves so entangled in sin that everyone around them knows is wrong, these are drastic, extreme measures to try and save them. But, Paul says, there's a second reason that we do this. The first one is for the person, but the second one is for the church itself. Did you notice how much more Paul condemns the church for tolerating this? I mean, he doesn't, he says to the guy, yes, this is wrong. And Paul says, I've judged it. But he tells the church in verse two, like, you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have mourned? He says to them in verse six, your boasting is no good. We don't know whether he means that literally, like they really are boasting about it. We'll talk about that in a second. Or again, it's figurative language to say, you should be dealing with this. But either way, Paul has strong, strong words for the church that they must deal with this for the sake of the church. Look what he says in the second half of verse six. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Yeast is a symbol in the scriptures for sin. A little sin goes everywhere just like yeast. You just put a little bit of yeast in the dough and you knead it and you let it rise and you punch it down and you knead it and the entire ball of dough, it doesn't matter how big it is, it will all have yeast everywhere in it. That's what sin is like and that's what sin is like in the church if we ignore it, if we turn the other way, if we pretend like it's not there. Humanly, when people are doing things that are wrong, they go one of two directions. Either they hide it. You're doing something wrong, and so you hide it. You don't want people to know about it. You don't want to be confronted. 
Or the other option is you flaunt it. You get it out there in front of people. You make a big deal of it and you dare people to tell you that it's wrong. Sin is like cancer in the church. Now, I want you to imagine somebody who does either one of those with cancer. Imagine someone who has cancer and he hides it. He doesn't admit it. He doesn't go to the doctors. He doesn't go to treatment. He doesn't do anything where someone might find out about it. What's going to happen to him? He's going to die. Now, imagine somebody that goes the other way. They have cancer and they flaunt it. They are out there on social media. They are telling, I've got cancer and it's great. Don't you tell me cancer's bad. This is awesome. Someday you're going to wish you had cancer like me. What's going to happen to that person? They're going to die. Either of those options results in death. Paul says you cannot leave sin running around in the church. It will destroy the church. It's like yeast. It goes everywhere. We saw that with David last week. He counts the army and 70,000 people die. Sin is pervasive. It's horrible. It's deadly. And Paul says you got to get it out. You cannot leave it there. Again, he condemns the guy a couple times for what he's done. Listen to how many times he tells the church what they need to do about this situation. The situation that maybe they've been ignoring, right? Maybe the, the, the proud and the boasting thing is just figurative for you're not dealing with it. Or maybe it's literal. Maybe they're flaunting it, right? Either they're ignoring it or they're flaunting it. But either one, listen to what Paul says they need to do. Verse two, put this person out of fellowship. Verse five, hand them over to Satan. Verse seven, get rid of the old yeast. Verse eight, keep the festival, but not with the yeast. Verse nine, don't associate with the sexually immoral person. Verse 11, don't associate with brothers and sisters in sin. Verse 12, judge those inside the church. Verse 13, expel the wicked person. Eight times, there's only 13 verses in the whole chapter. Eight times, Paul says, you gotta deal with this. You've got to get this out. Everyone knows this is bad. You cannot leave this in the church. Sin must be dealt with. We do not condemn those. We do not deal with the sin of those outside the church. The Lord will do that. But brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you're part of our church or any church, we must deal with sin in our midst. We must. We cannot ignore it and we cannot flaunt it. We must deal with it or it will wreak havoc. And think, remember, I started at the beginning of this talking about Jesus and the idea of the word judging and saying, you know, is Jesus a guy who goes around not telling people right and wrong? No, of course he is. But think of how Jesus deals with sin in Judaism. There's no church left. How does he deal with sin in Judaism? Who does he condemn? He condemns the people on the inside of Judaism. He condemns the religious leaders. He condemns the Pharisees, the conservative religious people. He condemns the Sadducees, the Herodians, the liberal religious people. He condemns, he pronounces judgment on the people inside Judaism. But what does he do to the people outside? How does he treat the pagans? How does he treat the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all the people who aren't good Jews? They're not inside, they're on the outside. Does he tell them what they're doing is wrong? Absolutely. But he never condemns them 
They feel safe with him. That they can hear him. You know, he tells, there's a story in John 8, a woman caught in adultery and, and eventually everyone leaves but Jesus. And Jesus says to the woman, woman, does anyone condemn you? And she's like, no, there's nobody here. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, I don't condemn you. Go do whatever you want. He still tells her she was caught in adultery. What she was doing is wrong. He still tells her it's sinful and tells her to stop doing it. But he doesn't condemn her. He he doesn't pass judgment. He doesn't deal with it. He says, you need to do this because God will deal with those outside the church, but we must deal with those inside the church. And if you are part of Dunwoody Community Church, you need to understand we do this. We do talk to people when these issues come up. Again, it's this long process, like Jesus says. We talk and we talk and we talk. Someone once asked me, well, how long? How long do you talk to someone about this? And my answer is as long as they're willing. As long as they're willing to engage with the scripture, as long as they're willing to have an actual discussion. But sooner or later, they're not willing to talk anymore. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. So one guy we went through this with eventually said to me, Jeff, I'm going to do this. So just send me the letter or whatever it is that the church is going to send me to tell me I've been a bad boy. My brother, I'm not going to send you a letter. I'm going to hand you over to Satan. And I don't know what God is going to do with that, but it won't be good. And this is the last time I call you brother. Because from now on, we are going to treat you like you're not a Christian because you are not obeying what the Lord Jesus has said. You refuse to acknowledge your own sin that is deadly. That is deadly to a Christian and it is deadly to a church. Paul tells us how serious sin is. We looked at the seriousness personally of David and Saul last week. And this week, Paul talks about the seriousness of sin in the church. So, I am going to pray for us. I am going to pray that we never get to this point again. But I want you to know it's in the Bible, so we will obey it. Now pray with me. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have forgiven us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you will deal with people outside the church. These these times when we have had to do this in our church, then, then we don't treat them like they're Christians anymore. They're outside the church. We no longer have to condemn them. They are your problem. You will deal with them. Thank you. Thank you that you don't call us to have to deal with this on and on and on. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for Dunwoody Community Church that we would be people who have soft hearts to sin, that we never get in these situations that none of us ever get to the point where we refuse to hear what you say and what our brothers and sisters say and what the church says to us. That that like this guy, we do what everyone knows is wrong and refuse to repent. Oh, Lord, please be gracious to us. Protect us. Protect us from the power of the evil one. That's one of the things you taught us to pray in, in your prayer. To to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we pray for your protection on our church that we would always turn away from sin, but we would never as a body ignore it. 
We would never pretend like it didn't happen. We would never hide it. We would never flaunt it. We would always deal with it. Jesus, we ask this in your name because we desperately need you to help us. So we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.